Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, True Crime Army. All right, so I'm actually bringing you this bonus episode, BTK. I did a series on him. It was three parts. And this is basically like just an additional part. It's, uh, I would say, like a bonus. For those of you who've gone to my website and actually explored the resources that I have on there about this case, you may have already watched the YouTube video where BTK pleads guilty in court. And that's what I'm going to play here for you today. My dad, he loves true crime. So me and him are always bonding over true crime and whatever latest show we've we've watched on Investigation Discovery or Oxygen or Netflix special or whatever. And so last week we got to chatting after he heard my whole series on BTK. And he went to my website and was watching it on YouTube, but he could only watch like snippets of it because he was working. And I told my dad, I said, you know, it's funny because I wanted to put that on audio and then kind of give my feedback to it throughout. But I figured maybe people wouldn't want to listen to that. And he said, no, of course, please do it because it's the only way that I'll actually ever be able to listen. So this is for my dad, but this is also for everyone else who might just want to know what he sounds like. And you're not going to learn anything new here, except you're going to actually hear what the killer did in his own words. But you're also going to see how cold and calculated and just callous Dennis Rader is about taking 10 lives. So here it is. This audio is taken directly from the courtroom as publicized by Channel 12 KWCH. Dennis Rader pled guilty only four months after he was busted. So he was busted in what, like February? And then by June, he was already sitting here pleading guilty. And what you're going to hear is a conversation between District Judge Gregory Waller and Dennis Rader himself. Dennis was charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder because there is no statute of limitations for murder. So what you will hear is Judge Waller, he's going to start each conversation. It's going to be like 10 separate conversations kind of. And Judge Waller is going to read each charge and then he's going to ask Dennis, okay, what happened? Now, my dad was like, oh, my God, why is the judge so calm when he's talking? And dad, Judge Waller is so calm because he's a judge. He took an oath and it's his duty to seek justice. That's all he does is he asks the questions and makes sure that the elements are met and that he can find the guy guilty. He can't. You know, he can't be up there. The judge can't be up there acting like an outraged lunatic. I mean, he has to, you know, leave that for the criminals. That's what the criminals are for, right? They're the ones that act like lunatics. Anyway, I commend Judge Waller and judges everywhere who have to maintain order in a courtroom, not only while respecting the rights of the murderous criminals everywhere, but they have to endure the pain and the suffering of the victims and their friends and their families as well. Without further delay, here is Dennis Rader's guilty plea. And I will, of course, if you know me, I'm going to be interjecting throughout to kind of explain and just kind of say what I think people are going to be thinking when they hear Dennis Rader talk. The first four charges have to do with the Otero family murders. Mr. Rader, I need to find out more information. On that particular day, the 15th day of January, 1974, can you tell me where you went to kill Mr. Joseph Otero? Mm, I think it's 1834. Uh, Edgemore. All right. Can you tell me approximately what time of day you went there? Uh, Somewhere between 7 and 7.30. This particular location, did you know these people? No, that's uh. No, that was part of my, uh, I guess my what you call fantasy. These people were uh, selected. All right. So you. Okay. Okay. You were engaged in some kind of fantasy during this period of time. 
Uh, yes, sir. All right. Now, when you use the term fantasy, is this something you were doing for your personal pleasure? Uh, sexual fantasy, sir. I see. So you went to this residence, and what occurred there? Well, <clears throat> um, I had uh, did some thinking on what I was going to do to uh, either Mrs. Otero or Josephine, and uh, basically broke into the house, or didn't break into the house, but uh, when they came out of the house, I came in and confronted the family, and then we went from there. All right. Had you planned this beforehand? To some degree, yes. Uh, after I got in the house, it, well, I lost control of it, but it, it was, you know, in the back of my mind, I had some ideas what I was going to do, did but uh, I just, I basically panicked that first day, so. Beforehand, did you know? Who was there in the house? I thought Mrs. Otero and the two kids, the uh, two younger kids were in the house. I didn't realize Mr. Otero was going to be there. All right. How did you get into the house? I came through the back door, uh, cut the phone lines, uh, waited at the back door, had reservations about even going or just walking away, but pretty soon the door opened and I was in. All right. So the door opened. Was it open for you? or did something... I think one of the kids, I think the... Uh, uh, junior, or not junior, yes, the, uh, the young girl, uh, Joseph, opened the door. He probably let the dog out because the dog was in the house. Did you catch that? He called little Joseph, he called him Junior. Like, sorry, Dennis, you're not friends with the Otero family. You cannot call him Junior. And the judge is probably thinking, oh boy, I wish I could have switched shifts with Bob when this case came in. All right, when you went into the house, what happened then? Well, I confronted the family, uh, pulled a pistol, uh, confronted Mr. Otero, and asked him to, uh, you know, that I was there to basically, I was uh, wanted. Uh, oh, wanted to I'm sorry, Dennis. Are you bored with talking about your horrific crimes, you old dirty bee? Well, keep talking because we want to fry you. Uh, wanted to. Uh, get the car. I was hungry, food. I was wanted. And asked him to lie down in the uh, living room. And uh, at that time, I realized that wasn't a really good idea. So I finally, the dog was a real problem. So I uh, asked Mr. Otero if he could get the dog out. So he had one of the kids put it out. And then I took him back to the bedroom. You took who back to the bedroom? Uh, the family, the bedroom, the four members. All right, what happened then? At that time, I tied him up. While still holding him at gunpoint? Well, in between tying and yes, yeah. All right. After you tied them up, what occurred? Well, uh, they started complaining about uh, being tied up, and I re-loosened re their bonds a couple of times. Uh, tried to make Mr. Otero as comfortable as I could. Uh, currently had a cracked rib from a car accident, so I had him put a pillow down on his, for his head. Uh, had he put a, uh, I think he parker or a coat underneath him. Uh, they, uh, you know, they talked to me about, uh, uh, you know, giving the car and whatever money. I guess they didn't have very much money. And uh, the, there I realized that, uh, you know, I was already, I didn't have a mask on or anything. They already had ID me and uh, uh, made, a, made a decision to go ahead and, and put them down, I guess, or strangle them. Put them down? Put them down? These are humans you're talking about. And I bet his lawyers, I bet Dennis Rader's lawyers wanted to strangle him at this very moment. Because before trial, they were probably like, okay, listen, Dennis, you want to appear as human as possible. And then there he goes talking about putting humans down. Are you serious? All right. What did you do to Joseph Otero? Senior? Joseph Otero? Yeah, okay. Joseph Otero Sr., Mr. Otero, the father. I uh, put a plastic bag over his head and then some cords, and then tighten it. This was in the bedroom? Yes, sir. Did he, in fact, uh, suffocate and die as a result of this? Not right away. No, sir, he didn't. What happened? Uh, well, after that, I, uh, I did miss this Otero. Uh, I had never strangled anyone before, so I really didn't know how much pressure you had to put on a person or how long it would take. But was she also tied up there in the yes, bed? Yes, uh -huh. yeah, both her hands and their feet were tied up. She was on the bed. Where were the children? Uh, 
well, uh, Josephine was on the bed and uh, Junior was on the floor at this time. So we're, we're talking, first of all, about Joseph Otero. So you put the bag over his head and tied it. Mm -hmm. And he did not die right away. Can you tell me what happened in regards to Joseph? Uh, he moved over real quick, like, and I think tore a hole in the bag. And I could tell that he was having some problems there. Yep, sure was, Dennis. You know, his problem was that you were in his house about to kill a little over half of his family. Seems like a pretty big problem. But at that time, the, the whole family just went, uh, they went panicked on me. So I, I worked pretty quick. Uh, what did you, uh, you worked pretty quick. Well, what I mean, I, 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 I strangled <coughs> Mrs. Otero and then she went out or passed out. I thought she was dead. She passed out. Then I strangled uh, uh, Josephine. She passed out. Oh, I thought she was dead. And uh, then I went over and uh, put a uh, and then uh, put a bag on uh, uh, Junior's head. And uh, and then uh, if I remember right, uh, Mrs. Otero came back. Uh, she came back and uh, sir, let me ask you about Joseph Otero Senior. Senior indicated he had torn a hole in the bag. What did you do with him then? I put another bag over it, or either that or a, if I recollect, I think I put a, uh, either a cloth or a t-shirt or something over it, over his head and then a bag, another bag. Did, he, su him did he subsequently die? Well, yes. I mean, I, I mean, I was, I didn't just stay there and watch him, but I was moving around the room. But. All right. So you indicated you strangled Mrs. Otero after you had done this is that correct now I went back and strangled her again that, and that that finally killed her at that time so this is in regards to count two you first of all put the bag over Joseph Otero's head mm -hmm. and he tore a hole in the bag mm -hmm. then you went ahead did you strangle Mrs. Otero then okay. or did you go first back? of all first of all Mr. Otero was strangled or a bag put over his head and strangled then I thought he was going down and I went over and strangled Mrs. Otero. I thought she was down. Then I strangled uh, uh, Josephine. I thought she was down. And then I went over to Junior and put the bag on his head. This is horrifying. Can you imagine being any of the surviving family members in the courtroom at this very moment when he's saying this? Listening to this callous, calculating monster talk about killing your family members. And he's saying it with as much ease as... It would be to tell someone how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It's absolutely horrifying. After that, Mrs. Otero woke back up and, uh, you know, she was pretty upset. What's going on? Yes, Dennis. Of course she's upset. You just killed her pride and joy, her husband and her two small children. And she knew that she was next. Ugh. You're despicable. And guys, listen, for the remainder of this, he actually talks about how each individual person that he's attacking seemed upset or was upset. And I'm like, yeah, of course you're upset. You're about to kill them. What other emotion would that person be feeling at that very moment? So I came back and uh, at that point in time, strangled her uh, for, for the death strangle at that time. With your hands or what? No, with a cord, with a, with a rope. And... Uh, then I, uh, I think at that point in time, I redid Mr. Otero, put the bag over his head, uh, went over and then took Junior. Oh, oh, before that, she asked me to, uh, to, to uh, save her son. So I actually had taken the bag off. So you're telling me that you grew a conscience midway through a murder? Nope, he didn't. He was probably a little more upset because he wanted everyone to be dead already. So he just thought, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to slay everyone. And it turns out you can't slay people that easily. And then, you know, also he's a worthless POS. So there's also that. So I actually had taken the bag off and then I was really upset at that point in time. So basically when Mr. Terrell was down, Mrs. Otero was down, I went ahead and took uh, uh, Junior, I put another bag over his head and took him to the other bedroom at that what, time. What did you do then? Uh, put a bag over his head, I put a, a cloth over his head, a t-shirt and a bag so he couldn't tear a hole in it. And uh, he subsequently died from that. And then when I went back, uh, Josephine had woke back up. What did you do then? And I took her to the basement and eventually uh, hung her. 
hunger in the basement? Yes, sir. Uh, did you do anything else at that time? Yes, I, uh, I had some sexual fantasies. But that was uh, after she was hung. All right. What did you do then? Went through the house, uh, kind of cleaned it up. Uh, it's called the right-hand rule. You go from room to room. I'm sorry, say again? The right-hand rule? Where did you learn that, Dennis? The serial killer handbook? Picked everything up. I think I took uh, Mr. O'Carroll's watch. There, I guess I took a radio. I uh, I forgot about that, but apparently I took a radio. Why did you take these things? I don't know. Uh, I have no idea. Just uh, what happened then? I uh, got the keys to the car. In fact, I had the keys, I think, earlier before that because I wanted to make sure I had a, a way of getting out of the house and uh, clean the house up a little bit, make sure everything's packed up and left through the front door. And uh, we went there, went over to their car and then drove over to uh, Dylan's, left the car there, and then eventually walked back to my car. All right. Now, sir, from what you have just said, I take it that the facts you told me apply to both counts one, all of counts one, two, three, and four. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Now, Mr. Raider. Yes. All right. So right now they're just pointing out some discrepancies in the Otero address as told by Dennis. But, you know, that's not really important. And ja and, and Judge Waller. He's about to move on to the Catherine Bright murder. So if you're keeping track, it took just about 10 minutes for Dennis to discuss how he eliminated four members of the Otero family. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code Mama Margo, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T, for 15% off. Enjoy, and when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. All right, Mr. Raider, we will now turn to count five. In that count, it is claimed that on or about the fourth day of April, 1974, in Sedgwick County, Kansas, that you unlawfully killed Catherine Bright, maliciously, willfully, deliberately, and with premeditation by strangulation and stabbing, inflicting injuries from which she did die on April 4th, 1974. Can you tell me what occurred on that day? Uh, the, uh, I don't know how to exactly say that. I had many, what I call them projects. They were different people in the town that I followed, watched. Uh, Captain Bright was one of the next targets, I guess, as I would indicate. How did you select her? Uh, just driving by one day, and I saw her go in the house with somebody else, and I thought that's a possibility. There was many, many places in the area, uh, College Hill, they're all over Wichita. But anyway, that's it. Just it was basically a selection process. Worked toward it. If it didn't work, I just move on to something else. But in the 
and uh, my kind of person is stalking and scrolling. You go through the uh, trolling stage and then a stalking stage. She was in the stalking stage when this happened. This is truly terrifying. All right, sir. So you identified Catherine Bright as a potential victim. Yes, sir. What did you do here in Sedgwick County then? Pardon? What did you do then here in Sedgwick County? Um, on this particular day, yes. uh, I broke into the house and waited for her to come home. How did you break into the house? Uh, through the back door on the east side. All right, and you waited for her to come home. Where yes, did sir. you wait? Uh, in the house there, probably close to the bedroom. I walked through the house and uh, kind of figured out where I'd be if they came through. Um, All right. What happened then? Uh, she and uh, Kevin uh, Bright came in. I uh, wasn't expecting him to be there. Uh, and come to find out, I guess they were related. Uh, that time I uh, approached him and told him I was wanted in California. Uh, I needed some car. Ba basically the same thing that I told the Terrells. Uh, kind of ease them, make them feel better. And proceeded to, I think I had him tie... I think I had him tie her up first, and then I tied him up, or vice versa. I don't remember right now. At that now let, time. let me ask, you mm -hmm. indicated you had some uh, items to tie these people with. Did you bring these items, both the Oteros and to this location? The Oteros, I did. Uh, I'm not really sure on the Brights. Uh, there was some, I, when I ended up working with the police, there was some controversy on that. Probably more likely I did, but uh, if if I had brought my stuff and used my stuff, uh, Kevin would probably be dead today. Right. I'm not bragging on that. It's just a matter of fact. It's the bonds I've uh, tied him up with, that he broke them. So. Wow. Absolutely wow. I'm not trying to brag? Then please, come on, elaborate. And while you're at it, please tell me about a murder that you committed while the death sentence was implemented in Kansas. Or you know what? Better yet, why don't we all step out of the courtroom and we leave you behind with the victim's families? That's what I call street justice. And it, uh, all right. And maybe same way with uh, same with Catherine. It was it got out of got out of hand. All right. Now you indicated that you believe you had Kevin tie Catherine up. Mm -hmm. Tell me what happened then. Okay. I moved. Uh, well, after I really can't remember, Judge, whether I had her tie him up or she tied him up. But anyway, I moved. Basically, I moved her to another bedroom, and he was already secure there by the bed. Uh, I tied his feet to the uh, bedpost, bottom bedpost, so he couldn't run. Uh, kind of tied her in the other bedroom came back to strangle him. And at that time, we had a fight. Were you armed with a handgun at that time also? Yes, I had a handgun. What happened when you I came I actually back? had two handguns. You are so extra. Uh, well, I started strangling. The, either the uh, parent broke or he broke his bonds and he jumped up real quick like. I pulled my gun and quickly shot him. Hit him in the head. He fell over. Uh, I could see the blood. And as far as I concerned, he, you know, I thought he was down. And was out and then went and started to strangle Catherine. And then we started fighting because the bonds weren't very good. And so back and forth, we fought. You and Catherine? Yeah, we fought. And I got the best of her and I thought she was going down and then I could hear some movement in the other room. So I went back and Kevin, uh, no, no, I thought she was going down went back to the other bedroom where Kevin was at, and I tried to re-strangle him at that time, and he jumped up, and we fought, and, uh, and he about, at that time, about shot me, because he got the other uh, pistol that was in my shoulder here. I had my magnum in my shoulder, so, and really, I... Holster. Hmm? Did you have it in the shoulder holster? Yes, and I had the magnum in the shoulder holster. The other one was a twenty-two, And we fought at that point in time, and uh, I thought it was going to go off. I jammed the gun. Stuck my finger in, the, in there, jammed it. And Do you guys think it's possible to jam a gun by sticking your finger in the barrel? That seems so absurd to me. For And listen, maybe I'm wrong, but for all my gun enthusiasts out there, what do you think? Do you think that it's possible? You think he's actually telling the truth or just, you know, another one of his sick, twisted memories that he contorted in his brain? And, uh, I think he thought that was the only gun I had because once I either bit his finger or hit him or something got away and I used the 22 and shot him one more time. And I thought he was down for good that time. All right, so you shot him a second time. Yes, sir. 
what happened then? Uh, went back to uh, uh, finish the job on Catherine, and uh, she was fighting. Uh, and at, at that point in time, I've been fighting her. I just, and then I heard some. I don't know whether I uh, was loose, basically losing control. The uh, strangulation wasn't working on her, and I uh, used a knife on her. You say you used a knife on yeah. her. Yes. What did you do with the knife? I stabbed her. Uh, she said either stabbed two or three times, uh, either here or here. Maybe two back here and one here, or maybe just two times back here. You were pointing to your lower back and your... your yeah, underneath the ribs. And your lower abdomen. Yeah, underneath the ribs, up, up under the ribs. So after you stabbed her, what happened? Uh, actually, I think at that point in time, well, it was a total mess because I didn't have control on it. Uh, she was bleeding. Uh, she went down. I think I just went back to check on Kevin, or at that basically same time I heard him escape. It could be one of the two, but all of a sudden the front door of the house was open and he was gone. And or oh, I tell you what I thought. I thought the police were coming at that time. I heard the door open. I thought, no, that's it. And I stepped out there, and he. I can see him running down the street. So I quickly cleaned up everything that I could and left. All right, no. Mr. Rader, you indicated that at the Otero's you did not have a mask on. Did you have a mask on at the Brights? No, no, I didn't. Uh -uh. All right, so what happened then? Judge Waller is like, oh boy, this man is straight crazy, but let's carry on. All right, so what happened then? Uh, I tried, to, I had already had the keys to the cars. Uh, and I thought I had the right key to the right car. I ran out to their car and would I think it was a pickup out there, and I tried it. It didn't work, and uh, at that point in time, I was, he was gone running down the street. I thought, yeah, I'm in trouble. So I tried it. didn't work, so I just took off, ran, and went down, went east, and then worked back toward the WSU campus where my car was parked. All right, so you had parked your car at the Wichita State University yes, campus? Yes, campus, uh -huh. How far away were, was the Bright's residence? Oh, I parked, uh, what is that, 13th? And they're, uh, let's see, they're, they were on 13th. Was it 17th? Yeah. Uh, I, was for, I was just about one block south of 17th where the car was. Uh, oh. there, there's a park there. I parked by that park. And then I walked to 13th or to the Bright's residence. Isn't it amazing how he's so nonchalant about this entire thing? Like, he really thinks the judge is his friend. Hmm. Let me think. I was parked on 13th Street. Mm, you know what? Wait, it could have been 17th Street. Do you now... I don't know. But we're soon about to get into the murder of Shirley Vianne. So I basically ran back. All right. So you were able to get to your car and get away. Yes, sir. And let's turn to count number six. In that count, they claim on March 17, 1977, in Cedric County, Kansas, that you unlawfully killed Shirley Vianne maliciously willfully, deliberately, and with premeditation by strangulation, inflicting injuries from which she did die on March 17, 1977. Can you tell me what you did on that day? As before, uh, Vianne was a, uh, actually on that one, she was completely random. Uh, there was actually someone across from Dillon's was a potential target. Uh, it was called Project Green, I think. I had project numbers assigned to it. And that particular day, I uh, drove to Dillon's parking, parking lot, watched this particular residence, and then got out of the car and walked over to uh, it was probably the police report, the address. I don't remember the address now. Knocked. Nobody, nobody answered it. So I was all keyed up. So I just uh, started going through the neighborhood. I'd been through the neighborhood before. I kind of knew a little bit of the layout of the neighborhood. Uh, I've been through the back alleys, knew where some certain people live. While I uh, was walking down Hydraulic, uh, I met a, a young boy <coughs> and uh, asked him if he ID some pictures. Uh, kind of a Russ, I guess, or Roos, as you call it. So I didn't mention this before, but the picture that Dennis Rader showed little five-year-old Steve when he was returning back from the grocery store, it was actually a picture of his own wife and his young son. Isn't that crazy that he would use pictures of his actual family when he was about to commit a brutal murder. And kind of feel it out. And I saw where he went. And 
and I went to another address and knocked on the door. Nobody opened the door, so I just noticed where he went and went to that house, and we went from there. Now you, you call these projects, uh, were these sexual fantasies also? Potential hits in my world, that's what I call them. So you call projects, hits. All right, and, and why did you have these potential hits? Was this to gratify some sexual interest? Or? Yes, sir. I had there. I had a lot of them, so it's just if one didn't work out, I just moved to another one. So, as I'm to understand it, then on the 17th of March, 1977, you saw this little boy go into a residence, mm -hmm. and you tried another <coughs> residence. No sure. one was there. You tried another residence. No one was there, so right, you went right, to the residence right, with a right, little boy. Yeah. And I watched. I watched where he went. What happened then? Uh, after I tried this one residence, nobody came to the door. I went to this house where he went in, knocked on the door and told him I was a private detective, uh, showed him a picture that I had just showed the boy and asked him if they could ID the picture. And at that time, I, I had the gun here and I just kind of forced myself in. I just walked in, just opened the door, walked in, and then pulled what, the pistol. What gun, what pistol? Uh, 357 Magnum. So you only had one gun with the pistol? <laughs> yes, sir. Uh -huh. What happened then? Uh, I told uh, Mrs. Espayan uh, that uh, I had a problem with uh, sexual fantasies that I was going to tie her up and that uh, I might have to tie the kids up and that she would cooperate with us, cooperate with me at that time. Uh, we went back, uh, she was extremely nervous. I think she even smoked a cigarette. And uh, we went back to uh, one of the back, back areas of the porch, explained to her that I had done this before. And uh, I think she was, at that point in time, I think she was sick because she had her night robe on. I think if I remember right, she was she had been sick, and I, I think she came out of the bedroom when I went in the house. So anyway, we went back to the her bedroom, and I proceeded to tie the kids up, and they started crying and got real upset. Of course, they got real upset. They're small children, and you're tying them up at gunpoint. I mean, what, this really goes to show how out of touch with reality this man truly is. So I said, "Oh, this is not going to work." So we moved him to the bathroom. She helped me. And then I tied the door shut. We put some toys and uh, blankets and odds and ends in there for the kids, make them as comfortable as we could. Tied the, uh, we uh, tied one of the bathroom doors shut so they couldn't open it. And then we shoved, she went back and helped me shove the bed up against the other bathroom door. And then I proceeded to uh, tie her up. Uh, she got sick, threw up, um, got her a glass of water, comforted her a little bit, and then went ahead and tied her up. And then Put a bag, a bag over her head and strangled her. All right. Was this a plastic bag also? Mm, yes, sir. I think it was. But I could be wrong on that. Okay, you put but a bag. It was something. I'm sure it was a plastic bag, yeah. You say you put a bag <laughs> over her head and strangled her. What did you strangle her with? Uh, I actually, I think on that, I had tied, uh, tied her legs to the uh, bedpost and worked up with the rope all the way up. And then what I had left over, I looped over her neck. All right. So you used this uh, rope to strangle her. Yes, I think I think it's the same one that I tied her body with. What happened then? Well, the uh, the kids were really banging on the door, hollering, screaming, and uh, and then the telephone rang, and they had talked about earlier that the neighbor was going to check on them. So I cleaned everything up real quick, like, and got out of there, left, and went back into my car. And when you say you cleaned everything, well, I mean, put my stuff. I had a briefcase, uh, whatever I had laying around, ropes, tape, cords. I threw that in there, my, you know, whatever. I had that I brought in the house. Had you brought that to the uh, Bright residence also? Yeah, was, there is some, there, I, I think it was some basic stuff, but uh, I don't remember bringing total stuff like I did to some of the others. Uh, was this a kit that you had prepared? Yeah, I, yes, I called my hit kit. All right, sir. It takes a lot to be a judge. And this poor judge, he's probably thinking, wow, this is stuff that you see in movies, but nope, not today. Today, this is real life. Now, the judge is about to go into the Nancy Fox murder. And remember, according to Dennis, that was his perfect hit. So let's hear what he's got to say. You left the Vianne residence and had you parked your vehicle near yeah, there? Yeah, still in the same parking lot there at Dillon's huh. at uh, Hydraulic and, and what is that? Harry? Lincoln. Lincoln. Lincoln and, <coughs> Lincoln and uh, Hydraulic. 
All right, in count seven, it is claimed that on the eighth day of December, 1977, in Cedric County, Kansas, that you unlawfully killed a human being, that being Nancy Fox, maliciously, willfully, deliberately, and with premeditation by strangulation, inflicting injuries from which the said Nancy Fox did die on December 8th, 1977. Can you tell me what you did on that day here in Cedric County? Nancy Fox was another one of the projects. Uh, when I was uh, trolling the area, I noticed her go in the house one night. Sometimes I would, and uh, anyway, I put her down as a potential victim. Now, um, let me ask you one thing, Mr. Rader. You used that term when you were patrolling the area. What do you mean by that? It's called stalking or trolling. So you were not uh, working in any form or fashion? You well, just... I don't know. If, you know, if you read much about serial killers, they go through what they call the different phases. Uh, that's one of the phases they go through as a, as a, as a trolling stage. You're basically, you're looking for a victim at that time. And that, you could be trolling for months or years. But once you lock in on a certain person, then you become stalking. And that might be several of them, but you really home in on that person. Uh, they, they basically become the, that's, that's the victim, or the, that's what you want to do. Uh, he said trolling with a T, not a trolling. He did say trolling All right, no, so no, I wasn't working, sir. Right. No, this was, no, this was off, off, off my hours. You see how Dennis says, quote, if you ever read about serial killers, end quote, and the judge, unless he's a true crime junkie like us, he's probably thinking, so I don't read about serial killers, but continue. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. Anyway, I found this fascinating since at the time, you know, Dennis started killing in 1974 and the term serial killer wasn't widely known by mainstream media. And I tried to look into who coined the term serial killer. And well, it's either Robert Ressler or some German guy. But Wikipedia and the Internet, they weren't very helpful. And I literally spent three minutes on it. So it's just interesting that Dennis is sitting here like having read his, you know, books on serial killers and then trying to educate the judge on what a serial killer is or does. And, and the judge doesn't care. The judge just says, tell me what you did. And then he'll either find you guilty or not guilty. All right. So you basically uh, identified Nancy Fox as one of your uh, projects. What happened there? Uh, at first, uh, she was uh, spotted. And then I did a little homework. I dropped by once to check the mailbox to see what her name was. Uh, found out where she worked. Uh, stopped by there once. Hillsburg kind of sized her up. I, the more I knew about a person, the, the more I felt comfortable with it. So I did that a couple of times. And then I just selected a night, which was this particular night, to try it, and it worked out. All right. Can you tell me what you did on the night of December 8, 1977? Now about two or three blocks away, I parked my car and walked to that residence. I knocked at the, knocked at the door first to make sure, see if anybody was in there, because I knew she arrived home at a particular time from where she worked. Uh, nobody answered the door, so I went around to the back of the house, uh, cut the phone lines. I could tell that there wasn't anybody in the uh, north apartment. 
broke in and waited for her to come home in the kitchen. All right. Did she come home? Yes, she did. What happened? Uh, I confronted her, uh, told her that I was a, uh, had a problem, sexual problem, that I would have to tie her up and have sex with her. Uh, she was uh, a little upset. Uh, we talked for a while. Uh, she smoked a cigarette. Uh, while, the, while we smoked a cigarette, I went through her purse, uh, identifying some stuff. She finally said, uh, well, let's get this over with so I can go call the police. I said, okay. And she said, can I go to the bathroom? And I said, yes. Uh, she went to the bathroom and came, and I told her when she came out to make sure that she was undressed. And uh, when she came out, I uh, handcuffed her. And uh, I don't really remember whether I, sir? You handcuffed her? You had a pair of handcuffs? Yes, sir. Uh -huh. What happened then? Well, anyway, I, had her, I handcuffed her, had her lay on the bed. And then I tied her feet, and uh, then I, I I was also undressed to a certain degree, and then I got on top of her, and then I reached over, took either either her feet were tied or not tied. But anyway, I took I think I had a belt. I took the belt and then strangled her with a belt at that time. All right. All right. After you had strangled her, what happened then? Okay. Uh, after I strangled her with the belt, I took the belt off and retied that with pantyhose, real tight. Uh, removed the handcuffs and uh, tied those with uh, with pantyhose. Can't remember the colors right now. Uh, I think I maybe retied her feet. What they had not already—they were probably already tied. Her feet were, uh, and at that time, uh, uh, masturbated, sir. All right. Had you had sexual relations with her? No, before? no, no. I told her I was, but I did not. So you masturbated. Then what did you do? Uh, Dressed and then went through the house, uh, took some of her personal items, and kind of cleaned the house up, went through it, make checked everything, and then uh, left. All right. Now, at this point, they're going through the information again about the address and whether he got it right or wrong, but they established that it was in Cedric County, which is part of the charge, and the judge, Judge Waller, just says, okay, listen, we're good with that. Let's move on to the murder of Maureen Hedge. Nine, nine thirteen or nine, nine oh three. No, I, I sure don't. I know it was on Persian, South oh. Persian. That's all. I don't. It was a nine. It was nine something, sir. But I don't remember the other one. Digits. Eight forty-three. The address, as I said, is really not important as long as you remember it happened here in Wichita, Sudbury County. Yes, sir. All right, sir, let's turn to count eight. In count eight, it is claimed that on or about the 27th day of April, 1985, to the 28th day of April, 1985, in Cedric County, Kansas, it is claimed that you unlawfully killed a human being, Marine Hedge, maliciously, willfully, deliberately, and with premeditation by strangulation, inflicting injuries from which Marine Hedge did die on April 27, 1985. Can you tell me what occurred on that day? Well, actually, uh, kind of like the others, uh, she was chosen. Uh, I went through the different phases, uh, stalking phase, and since she lived down the street from me, I could watch the coming and going quite easily. Uh, on that particular date, I, uh, uh, I uh, had a, uh, a other commitment. I came back from that commitment. See how he talks about this as a commitment? Yeah, well, that commitment was his son's Boy Scout camping trip. Parked my car over at uh, Woodlawn and 21st Street uh, at Bowling Alley there at that time. Uh, before that, I dressed until I had some other clothes on, changed clothes. I went to Bowling Alley, uh, went in there, had a pretty sense of bowling, called a taxi, had a taxi take me out to Park City. I had my kit with me with a bowling bag. All right, that was Park City in Sedgwick County, yes, Kansas? Yes, sir. Uh -huh. All right, you had the taxi take you to Park City. What happened there? Uh, there I asked, I, I uh, pretended that I was a little uh, drunk. I just took I just took some beer and forced it around my mouth, and the guy could probably smell the alcohol on me. I asked, told him to let me out so I could get some fresh air, and I walked from where the taxi let me out over to her house. All right, where does she live? Uh, 62... <laughs> 42? 54? 
6254? North Independence. Uh, all right. When you walked over there, what happened next? Well, as before, I was going to have uh, sexual fantasies, so I brought my hit kit, um, and lo and behold, her car was there. I thought, gee, she's not supposed to be home. So I very carefully snuck into the house, kind of like a cat burglar, and after checking the house, she wasn't there. So about that time, the doors rattled. So I went, went back to one of the bedrooms and hid back there in one of the bedrooms. Uh, she came in with a male visitor. They were there for maybe an hour or so. Uh, he left. I waited till wee hours in the morning. I bet everyone's going to start checking their closets now as soon as they get home. Isn't this terrifying? Literally, this is every child's nightmare. Just like in the Colonel Russell Williams story, which is the story of the Canadian Air Force guy from my episode two, these two guys, I mean, they are, they are scary. These are scary guys. Uh, and then proceeded to uh, sneak into her bedroom and uh, flip the lights on, what it looked like, or I think the bathroom lights. I just I didn't want to flip her lights on. And, and she screamed and uh, I jumped on the bed and strangled her manually. All right. Now... Were you wearing any kind of disguise or mask at this time? No, no. You indicated this woman lived down the street from you. Did she know you? Uh, casually, we'd uh, walk by and wave. Uh, she she liked to work in her yard as well as I like to work. It's just a neighborly type thing. It wasn't anything personal. I mean, just a neighbor. Meh, no big deal. She was just my neighbor, you know. I mean, whatevs, not a big deal. Just my neighbor. All right, so she was in her bed when you turned on the lights in the bathroom? Yeah, the bathroom, yeah, to, to, so I could get some light in there. All right, what did you do then? Oh, I manually strangled her when she started to scream. So you but, used your hands? Yes, sir. And you strangled her? Did she die? Yes. All right, what did you do then? Uh, after that, uh, since I was in the uh, sexual fantasy, I uh, went ahead and uh, stripped her and uh, probably went ahead and uh, I'm not sure if I tied her up at that point in time. But anyway, uh, she was nude, and I put her on a blanket, uh, went through her purse, some personal items in the house, uh, figured out how I was going to get her out of there. Uh, eventually uh, moved her to the trunk of the car. <sighs> oh, I'm sorry, Dennis. Are we boring you, making you explain your sick, twisted reality to a courtroom of people who wish they could just take you out back and execute you? All right, carry on. <sighs> Took the car over to... Uh, Christ Lutheran Church. Uh, this is with the older church. And uh, I took some pictures of her. So in my research for this case, there was so much more that I could have talked about. There's so many books on this case. And there's one in particular. I didn't get a chance to read it, but it's uh, Dennis's, Dennis Rader's daughter, Carrie. She actually wrote a book called A Serial Killer's Daughter. This just literally just a few years ago. Well, I did watch a news report with Carrie, and she discusses that during the court hearing, the Christ Lutheran pastor, Reverend Michael Clark, and he was the reverend, the pastor for the church, which Dennis was the president for, he attended the hearing. And it was during this hearing for the first time that Reverend Clark heard about Dennis taking one of his victims to the church and then taking pictures of her. Now, remember, this is back in the day, like in the 70s. So they're probably in a new building now and everything. But the the pastor, the reverend was horrified. And this this was pretty bad. I imagine that the church was already reeling and getting slack because their president was a serial killer. But man, I can't imagine this testimony would make anything better. What do you guys think? Do you think that you'd go to one of your church members' trials if he was being charged for 10 murders? I mean, it's a little bit different, right? Because this is the reverend. He's in charge of the church. He probably needs to take care of his people. But but still, it's, what, I mean, would you do it? Would you go? All right. You took some photographs. Or what kind of camera did you use? Uh, poor Lord. Did you keep those photographs? Yes, the police probably have them. All right. What happened then? Uh, that was it. Uh, that went uh, took. Uh, she went through. I tied it. She was already dead, so I took uh, pictures of her in different forms of bondage, and that's probably what got me in trouble was the bondage thing. So anyway, that's the, probably the. No, that's not what you got in trouble for, Dennis. You got in trouble for killing people. 
Just saying. The main thing. But anyway, after that, I uh, moved her back out to the car, and then uh, we went east on 53rd. All right, what occurred then? Sir? What happened then? Oh, uh, trying to find a place to hide her, hide the body. Did you find a place? Yes. Yes, I did. Where? Uh, couldn't tell you without looking at a map, but it was on 53rd, uh, Queen Greenwich, maybe. Maybe, what's what's the other one? Web. Between, I think between Wed and Webb and Greenwich, I found a, a ditch, a low place on the north side of the road, and hit her there. All right. You say you hit her there. Well, too. there were some there were some trees, some brush, and I laid that over top of her body. All right. So you removed the body from the car, put her in the ditch, and then laid some some brush over the body. Yes, sir. All right, sir. In count nine, it is claimed on or about the 16th day of September, 1986 in Cedric County, Kansas, that you unlawfully killed a human being, Vicki Wegerly, maliciously, willfully, deliberately, and with premeditation by strangulation, inflicting injuries from which the said Vicki Wegerly did die on September 16, 1986. Can you tell me what you did here in Sedgwick County on that day that makes you believe you are guilty? As, uh, again, Vicki was, regularly was another potential victim. I went through those different phases, uh, locked in on her, as I would call it, and uh, decided that I would try that date. I used a ruse as a uh, telephone repairman to get in their house. Uh, drove there in my own personal car uh, around lunchtime, during lunch hour, or approximately that time. It was earlier in the morning that. And... Uh, but my, I actually went somewhere else and changed uh, changed my clothes, what I, what I call my kit uh, clothes. And, kit uh, clothes? Kit clothes. Uh, basically different, you know, things that I'd need to get rid of later. Not, not the same kind of clothes that I had on. I, I don't know what other better word to use it, uh, crime clothes or hit clothes. I just call them hit clothes. What the Crime clothes? Hit clothes? I wonder what the mafia uses. Uh, anyway, I walked from my car as a telephone uh, repairman. As I walked there, I donned the telephone helmet. I had a briefcase. Went to one other address just to kind of size up the house. I'd walked by it a couple times, but I wanted to check it a little bit more. Uh, as I approached it, I could hear a piano sound. And uh, went to this other door, knocked on them, and told them I was, that we were recently working on telephone repairs in the area. And then went to her went to her and knocked on the door and asked her if I could come check her telephone lines inside. Did she allow you in? Yes, she did. What happened then? I uh, went over and uh, found out where the telephone was, uh, simulated that I was checking the uh, telephone. I had a make-believe instrument. And uh, after she was looking away, I, I drew a pistol at her and asked her if she'd go back to the bedroom with me. Is this the same three fifty seven Magnum you used? No, this, this was a different one. Different pistol. Are you asked her to go back to the bedroom with you after drawing a pistol on her. Yes, sir. What happened then? Uh, I told her, we went back to the bedroom, I told her I was going to have to tie her up. Uh, she was very upset. And I think we, I used some material that was in, uh, and that, that's another thing, I'm not sure, but I, I think I used the material that they had in their bedroom. And after I tied her hands, uh, she broke that and we started fighting. And we fought quite a bit back and forth. All right. She was physically fighting you. Oh yeah, yes sir. Mm -hmm. What happened then? Uh, finally got the hand on her and got a, uh, a nylon sock and started strangling. So you wrapped the stocking around her neck. Yes. Mm -hmm. What happened then? Uh, I finally gained uh, gained on her and, and and put her down and I thought she was dead, but apparently she wasn't. But uh, after after she was down and not moving anymore, I, I rearranged her clothes a little bit and took some took photos. I think three of them, if I remember. And then uh, after that, I, there was a lot of commotion. Uh, she had mentioned something about her husband coming home. Uh, so I got out of there pretty quick. The dogs were raising a lot of cane in the back. Uh, the doors and the windows were all open to the house. A lot of noise and we were fighting. It's crazy that no one heard the commotion when all the windows are open and all the doors are open. And he admits that the dog and the victim were both making a ruckus. Also, I don't know, but... I wonder if anyone ever questioned the elderly neighbor about what happened that day. I mean, she would have seen the telephone repairman because he says he knocked on her door, you know, to kind of play up this ruse. And 
maybe you know he was a strange man in the neighborhood or something like that i don't i mean i don't know he wasn't busted again he wasn't busted until 2004 so i don't know i left pretty quickly after that better thing the briefcase and had her i'd already gone through her uh, purse and got the keys to the car and used her car for my getaway car all right now you indicate that you thought that she was dead did you discover later that she was not dead yes i guess the paramedics uh, arrived and they tried to attempt to re- relieve her or drive her that, that failed. I don't know if she died there or on the way to the hospital or at the hospital. I don't recollect. But you later found out that she did die as a result of your strangulation. Yes. Now we're about to get into Dennis's 10th and final murder, the murder of Dolores Davis. Now, sir, let's turn to count 10. In that count, it's claimed that on or about the 18th day of January 1991 to the 19th day of January 1991, in the county of Sedgwick, state of Kansas, that you did then and there unlawfully kill a human being, that being Dolores E. Davis, maliciously, willfully, deliberately, and with premeditation by strangulation, inflicting injuries from which the said Dolores E. Davis did die on January 19, 1991. Mr. Rader, please tell me what you did here in Sedgwick County, Kansas, on that day that makes you believe you're guilty. Now, that particular day, I had some commitments. I left those, uh, went to one place, changed my clothes, went to another place, uh, parked my car, finally made arrangements on my hit kit, my clothes, and then walked to that residence. Uh, after spending some time at that residence, uh, it was very cold at night, uh, had reservations about going in. They, I had cased the place before, and I really couldn't figure out how to get in, and she was in the house, so I finally just uh, selected a, a, a concrete block and threw it through the plate glass window on the east and came on in. Right, where is this residence located? It's on Hillside, but I couldn't give you address. I know it's probably 61, probably 62-something. Oh, 62-something. North or south? North. North Hillside. All right, so you used a concrete block to break a window? Mm-hmm. Plate glass window. Patio floor. What happened then? Uh, noise. I just went in. Uh, she came out of the bedroom and thought that a car had hit her house. And I told her that I was, uh, I used the, the roofs of uh, being wanted. Uh, I was on the run. I needed food, car, warm, warm up. And, uh, and I asked her, I handcuffed her and uh, kind of talked to her, told her that I would like to get some food, get her keys, her car, and <clears throat> kind of rest assured, you know, walk, talk with her a little bit calmed her down a little bit, and, uh, and then eventually I checked, uh, I think she was still handcuffed, I uh, went back and checked out where the car was, uh, simulated getting some food, odds and ends in the house. This turd was literally pretending to eat a sandwich. Can you imagine poor Dolores? I mean, she's trying to get to sleep and some creeper broke into her house to terrorize her and he's sitting there pretending to freaking eat. <sighs> this is despicable. But I like I was leaving. Then went back and uh, removed her handcuffs and, uh, and then tied her up and then and then eventually strangled her. Or you say eventually strangled her? Well, after I tied her up and went through some things in the room there and then and then strangled her. You say you went through, were you looking for something? Mm-hmm. Well, some personal items, yes. I took some personal items from there. Did you take personal items in every one of these incidents? Uh... I did on the hedge. Uh, I don't remember anything of uh, Vicky's place. We have Charles. We got the watch and the radio. I don't think I did any in Brights. Uh, Vians, no, I don't think so. Fox, yes, I picked some things from Fox. It was hit and miss. All right, but probably, probably if, it, if, it, if it was a control situation where I had more time, <coughs> I took something. But if it, if it was a confusion and other things, I didn't as I was trying to get out of there. All right, so in regard to the Davis matter, you went around the room, took a few personal things. What did you do then? Uh, strangled her. What did you strangle her with? Pantyhose. All right, what happened then? Uh, kind of like uh, Mrs. Hedge. Uh, I already figured out my, I had a you know plan on leaving and uh, tr- put her in a blanket and drove her to the car, put her in the trunk of the car. So you were able to strangle her to death with these pantyhose? Yes, sir. All right, you put her in your car, in her, car. In car. Her, her car, her car, uh-huh. the trunk of her car. Uh-huh. What happened then? Uh, 
I really had a commitment I needed to go to, so I moved her to one spot, took her out of her car. This gets complicated. Yeah, it's complicated when you kill people and rob their families of a loved one. But yeah, go ahead. Tell me about the complexity of your plans after you killed someone. Then the stuff I had, clothes, gun, whatever, I took that to another spot in her car, dumped that off. Okay. Then took her car back to her house, uh, left that. Let me think now. Okay. In the interim. Did you catch that? He's popping his lips thinking about what he did. I just, I just, I can't right now with this guy. He literally acts like a little boy. I took her car back to her house. In the interim, I realized that I had lost one of my guns. I dropped it somewhere. So I was just trying to figure out where my gun was. So I went back in the house, realized I had dropped it when I went in, the, when I broke the plate glass window. It dropped and fell on the floor right there, and I found it right there. So that solved that problem. Anyway, I went back out, uh, threw the keys, uh, checked the car real quick, quick like, uh, and threw the keys up on top of the roof of her house, walked from her car back to my car, took my car, drove it back, and I either dropped more stuff off or I picked her up and put them in my car. And then I drove up uh, northeast of uh, Sedgwick County and dropped her off underneath the bridge. So all of these incidents, these 10 counts, occurred because you wanted to satisfy a sexual fantasy. Is that correct? Yes. Does any party desire any further uh, matters to be put on the record at this time? No, Your Honor. All right, you may be seated, Mr. Ridley. Did you catch that sigh? Dennis, he was talking on his feet the entire time. And that was the noise that he made as he sat down. Like, like he's relieved that he finally got that off his chest and could probably, and can, you know, reveal his true self in front of all these people. And you know what? He'd only been standing for about 45 minutes. I will find that you, Dennis L. Rader, have knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily waived your constitutional rights and entered your pleas of guilty. I will find that you understand the nature of the charges and the consequences of your pleas. Based upon your statements to the court, I will find there are factual bases for each of these pleas of guilty. I will accept these pleas of guilty and adjudge you, Dennis L. Rader, guilty of murder in the first degree in count one, a class A felony, murder in the first degree in count two, a class A felony, murder in the first degree in count three, a class A felony, murder in the first degree in count four, a class A felony, murder in the first degree in count five, a class A felony. So that does it, True Crime Army. That was BTK's guilty plea. Well, a few months later, in August of 2005, the sentencing hearing was held. And you can hear Dennis's rambling apology to the court. I mean, it's not it's not even worth it. I, ha I do have it linked, though, for you so you can check it out. I have the link because you can find it on YouTube as well as the video that I just the audio from the video I just shared. And Dennis was just a hot mess during the sentencing hearing. He was all over the place and just I don't know, maybe maybe jail got to him at that point. Another thing that is available online is you can watch the victim impact statements. But, you know, if you just fair warning, if you watch those, be prepared with some Kleenex because it is just heart wrenching. Kevin Bright, you remember uh, Catherine Bright's brother, the one who he had shot twice. He was Dennis's sole surviving victim. And he talks about the trauma that he's experienced all these years later. And remember, that was in 74. Now, the videos, of course, the victim impact statements were given in 2005. So it's been 15 years since then as well. And do you remember Vicki Weggerly? I talked about her case in part two of my three-part series. Well, she had that two-year-old son who was home with her at the time of her murder. Well, you can actually see him. He's like this beautiful young man now. And during the sentencing hearing, he's standing behind his sister and his dad as they give their victim impact statements. And, you know, he's another, you could actually say he's another surviving Dennis Rader victim. 
And it's terrible that the little boy, you know, he never got to know his mother. He never got to experience what it was like to have a mom, you know, and it's just, ugh, I can't, it's despicable. So that's it, guys. That's it for BTK. Don't expect any other surprises for BTK because I am over him. I do want to remember the victims and continue to commend the amazing police work that eventually led to this monster being removed from the streets. Because one thing is for sure, he was ramping up to kill again. If you want to keep hearing stories by me, you can follow me on social, on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast and on Facebook at Military True Crime. This episode was produced by Mama Margot Productions and all of the music was created by Tyops. As always, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. Let's work another podcast.